Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. One of the best things about living in a college town is the access to individuals from across the globe. Oftentimes in American politics, outsiders can assure us that even our broken system can seem sane when compared to how other countries function on a legislative basis. Today on the Spent the Rent podcast, we will be joined by University of Oregon graduate student Kaz Zaidi. Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Self-Esteem Boat Willie. My guest today is Kaz Zaidi. Kaz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, mate. So we're going to go right into it. Uh, you and I had met in the barbershop. I cut your hair a few times and instantly thought you were a really interesting person and would be great to have on the show. Uh, you know, being from England, it's a great opportunity to have you here because we can talk about Brexit. And that's something that Americans don't know anything about. So, I mean, I think let's just get right into it. If, if you were telling someone that had no idea about what Brexit is, what is it? All right. So in the 1970s, the European Economic Union, the thing that ended up becoming the EU, was uh, taking on new members and Britain became part of that. And a lot of people didn't like it. Um, and those people kind of harbored those grudges for a long time. And then we had a referendum on it in 2015. And kind of in much the same way as there was a perfect storm around the election of Donald Trump, there was a perfect storm around Brexit. And a very unexpected result happened, which was that people uh, voted to leave the European Union, which is the largest trading bloc on the planet. And you'd think something people wanted to be part of. Right. And so, I mean, when... Basically, the biggest fear was immigration, right? Is kind of the push is that there was too much of a different shade, we'll say, coming into England. Yeah, it was immigration and it was regulation as well. Right. So the EU allows free movement. Um, so someone from Bulgaria, uh, which was about to join the EU at that point, uh, could go and work in Britain. Someone from Britain can go and work in France or Spain. Right. Um, and you know, that's great for, for middle-class people, but for working people, you know, you get people coming in from, uh, places where the cost of living is lower, wages get undercut and there were real, you know, issues around, around labor issues, really. Right. It seems like the day after people were like, wait, what did I vote for? Yeah. You know? And I mean, and now Scotland has talked about leaving the United Kingdom because, you know, because they're like, well, we want to stay. <laughs> you know, in right the in, the, in yeah. the EU. And so, yeah, it's pretty wild. And I think it has a lot to do, like you said, kind of with how America saw the rise of Trump. I mean, there's this whole conservative movement across the world. Mm. And so, so 
with Theresa May now kind of in a limbo period mm. where she's kind of the, you know, the prime minister of England, if people don't understand, don't know. I know that Americans don't, you know, they just don't know a lot about English politics or, you know. At least English politics post 1776, right? <laughs> right, right, right. That's all that matters, the Revolutionary mm. War. But so, I mean, what do you think is going to happen with all that? I think there's probably going to be another election, personally. Right. So um, basically the way things work in the UK is the Prime Minister is the leader of the biggest party. And they need the confidence of the House, as people call it, which basically means the ability to command a majority of the, the members of Parliament to get them to do what you want. And at the moment, it looks like she certainly doesn't have the opposition parties, and a lot of her own party is attacking her for not being hard enough on Brexit, so not making it happen better, basically. Right. And then is it slated to happen in March? It was so Brexit is supposed to be done, dusted uh, by. I think it was actually originally supposed to be done, um, like the deal was supposed to be struck this summer. But yeah, the the final date is like uh, I think it's like the eighteenth of March or yeah, something like so that. I saw next something uh, last night about it. Twenty nineteen. So for people that really still don't understand, <clears throat> with Brexit, you know, the United Kingdom is England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Is that it? Yeah. So it's right. a bit of a it's a bit of a funny setup in the UK. And then the and then the European Union is like a bunch of countries. Yeah. You got like France and Italy. It's like twenty six, twenty seven right. countries. So for Brexit, they're leaving it, which would secure their borders more. Possibly. But that depends on the deal that's struck. Right. Um and so the idea is that uh these faraway bureaucrats uh have been telling us what to do for too long. And we've kind of, we've had enough and we want to take back control of our borders. We want to take back control of regulations. And and uh, there's also this idea that a lot of money gets sent to Europe, although Britain gets back more money than it sends. Right. Um, but basically what's happened is that for the last 30 years, um, conservative politicians uh, have used Europe as a punching bag. Right. It's not me that's causing the problem. It's Europe that's the issue. And you do that for long enough, you know, you, you blame everything you're doing wrong on someone else. And then you finally get uh, the situation where the person that's to blame is kind of, inverted commas, being held accountable. Right. And all of a sudden, it turns out that they weren't the problem after all. Right. But wouldn't, wouldn't close, I mean, I don't, I've never been hmm. to Europe. So with, as of now, when people can travel to work in different countries, basically. Is there, I mean, you hop on a train or whatever it is, and you just cross, there's no, you don't need passport, you don't need, you know. You do need a passport. You like, do. So you, there is checks There are There day. are checks, um, but they're not, they're not hard borders. So for example, if you jump on the Eurostar, which is the Channel Tunnel, like, they check to see if you have a European Union passport. Right. Um, and if you do, then yeah, you have free And it's travel. just like scanned, it's fast. Yeah, right? it's, it's pretty quick. It's right. pretty quick. So wouldn't, wouldn't securing that cost a lot of taxpayer money if they have to raise? Yeah, this is definitely one of those things where people kind of thought about the big headline and then didn't worry about little details. Yeah, like, it, I mean, like, it costs almost more than the fear of losing a job to someone else. Yeah. You know, because then it's like, yeah, that's insanity. But I think it's, it's and this is kind of where, it, for me, it links to the, to the whole Trump phenomenon. I don't just mean the man himself. I mean everything that right. kind of led up to him is it's people looking for easy solutions in a really complicated world. And it's that, I mean, immigration is an issue. Yeah. And, you know, obviously in Europe, you see 
I don't want to say terrorism more, well, I but mean, it no, is. It like, is in ultimately, London. You know, there's yeah. terrorism, and in Germany as well. Right. Um, and the fact there is that, uh, you know, if you're going to let large bodies of of uh, population that that just hasn't lived in a place before some into a place, there's going to be cultural tension. There's going to be economic right. tension. Um, and there's no getting away from that. And, you know, as someone who's, whose family's been doing a lot of immigrating the last like 50, 60 years, um, I'm not going to shy away from that aspect of it. I think a lot of liberals don't acknowledge that if you just dump a bunch of working class people on top of another bunch of working class people yeah, yeah, yeah. and then get them to compete with each other, you're going to get you're going to get tension. I think that's a big um, problem with in America. Why, like the rise of the Trumpism, yeah. essentially, is that what is American Americanism? You know, mm. what is it? What does it mean to be an American? And it's difficult because I think liberals look at it multicultural, and obviously Europe is extremely multicultural. Yet, when you look at the different countries' base, France, Spain, Italy, you've got these tight quarters of countries where the primary ethnicity is like solid groups, and then yeah. they're smaller you know, minorities and whatnot, just like anywhere else. And it's interesting because we have in America such a huge country, but I view it as being, you know, the, if you visualize the idea of what an American looks like and you see a white haired or a white person with blonde hair, then you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like it's, it's, it's a ton of people, you know? So, so you, like you said before, your family had immigrated a lot. So your parents are from India. Yeah. My parents are from, well, technically my, my mother's from India. My father's from Pakistan. Um, they actually both grew up in the same town in India, and my father's father was on a business trip to Lahore, which is now in in Pakistan, when partition happened and ended up getting stuck there. So, and then my father came over to the UK in the uh, in the nineteen seventies, right? Um, and you know, he's he spent more of his life in London than so. Anywhere by all else. intents yeah. purposes, he's British. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But yeah, and then I mean, um, so. Uh, and then you relocated to Oregon. Your wife is from Oregon. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she grew up uh, She grew up in Silverton. She went to the UK to work. We met over there. Wow. And uh, about three, four years ago now, we came out here on holiday, you know, meet the folks, that kind of thing. Right. And I, I just kind of took one look at the mountains and the trees, and I was like, why are we living in London? <laughs> right. What we if, could be living it, here. So, I mean, on the off the point, but, you know, my family is originally from Ireland. Mm. It's pretty similar, right? Like yeah. Oregon and Ireland. I absolutely need to go. But so that's kind of a quick overview of Brexit. Um, we also wanted to discuss, you know, a lot of people are afraid of the word socialism, democratic socialism mm. in this country. And off uh, air, we talked about how in England, you would call it a social democracy. So it's not democratic socialism. No. So what are the differences? Right. So... Essentially, social democracy takes capitalism and private ownership of property seriously. It says, yeah, this is a system that can be made to work. But what we have to do is make sure that no one group of people gets too rich or too powerful. So we have a lot of public ownership. And social democracy is kind of, it's essentially anti-capitalist. Um, not very strongly anti-capitalist, not like communism or, or anarchism. Sure. Um, but it says, no, we need um, to minimize private property, uh, everything as much as possible, especially government services should be owned by the public. So if you kind of imagine the, the political spectrum, 
they just they they do sit next to each other on the political spectrum. Right. Um, and I'll be honest, like sometimes I'm a social democrat and sometimes I'm a democratic socialist. It, right. You know, it kind of depends on on the particular issue. Which system do you think would be more viable in America? I think definitely social democracy more than democratic socialism. Right. I think you'd have to just do too much to to change the culture and the way that people go about things right. to but, to achieve social democracy. You know, one of the things that you had said that you really want to discuss is uh, American healthcare mm. and Medicare for all. And I mean, if you introduce things that would be considered by Fox News to be socialist, like Medicare for all, mm. slowly, like, I, I mean, social security is essentially, it is a social socialist yeah. pro- program, you know, you pay into it. And so it's kind of an investment. It's like a bank account for somebody mm. that's being forced to save money, you know? Yeah. I mean, so so political scientists would say that social security as it's set up now is actually what we'd call clientelist, which is to say you buy off one group in society, so they always keep voting for you. Whereas a more socialist approach would be to have something similar for college students, you know, which would be free tuition would be the equivalent and so you have a range of programs looking after different interests and different groups of people. Right. And even though social security is uh, social, so socialist in its kind of inception, the way that it's actually implemented means that it's a way of making sure that there's a group of people, pensioners, who are always voting, and then both parties kind of vie to see who's going to be, you know, how they can capture that vote. Well, and it's crazy with you know, the rise of Trumpism, the older crowd that's just scared of how the changes are happening. Mm. They seem to ignore the fact that their party is going after Social Security. But what I've found is a lot of times people that are now hitting that age, 60, is it 65? 65. 65, yeah. they've hit, they're hitting that age and the party that they supported is is going after it. They have this mentality like people like myself that are 36 they're like, well, you haven't really paid into it for that long. I'm like, well, I've paid into it for 20 years now, mm. <laughs> you know? And it's like this entitlement, it's it's ironic. The baby boomers, I think, are the most entitled generation ever. And yet they think yeah. that the millennials are, and yet we have no leg to stand on. We can't buy a house for $12,000 like they once did. And, all, yeah. you know, and it's just crazy. But because it's no secret that Republicans are going after Social Security, and yet people just ignore that. Like, they're like, well, that doesn't matter because, you know, Obama. I think yeah, you know, yeah I, think, I think a lot of the time people don't realize that the help the help they're getting from the government in some ways they kind of they see it in every sense of the word as an entitlement right and the thing about um social programs is the worst way to think about them is like a communal bank account right they're not like that they're more like insurance you know sure the idea is well you know I might never have a problem in my entire life. Or I might walk out my my house, get hit by a car, and break my leg. And people just don't even face that reality. Yeah. That everybody could be two weeks away from... I mean, a couple weeks ago, I had a guest that was that was homeless, mm. you know, two years before. And she made choices, and she'll be the first to admit it. But any one of us, you and me included, could find ourselves, you know... In that Especially situation. with me as a barber, it's like, if I broke my hand, I'd be out of work. Yeah. You know, and I'm an independent contractor, which means that I work my ass off, you know, you know, and I do it for myself, which is the American dream, mm. essentially. But with that comes risk. There's no unemployment insurance that's backing me up. There's no, you know, all these different things. And so the word entitlement is such a negative connotation mm. to people. But, you know, that's the, the, I guess, the big debate about American healthcare right now with the Bernie Sanders camp that supports 
universal health care is that we feel it's a right, you know, and yeah. not just a, a privilege or something that only a few should should be able to have. I saw what Alexandria Acosta Cortez was talking about how there's anytime you have insurance that like the healthcare setup the way that it is, it creates cracks and it's inevitable that those cracks will grow. Yeah. And then there's more people falling in those cracks constantly. And then now the news just broke about Texas that Texas a judge ruled that Obamacare is unconstitutional. And so it's in, it could be in jeopardy, which I think could be a good thing because that might lead towards. Yeah, I mean, Obamacare was a compromise. And, and although it introduced the idea of collective um, paying in terms of medicine, it doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. Right. And ultimately, it was written by Republicans who were trying to do everything possible to not make universal health care like the kind we see in most other advanced nations happen. They just right. didn't want to see it. And then the whole strategy lately, with especially with Trump, though it's failed, but with Trump is to just dismantle it, is to like take parts that are key, like the yeah. mandate. The mandate is probably what people deem to be unconstitutional, mm. which is, that's really interesting. How How is it going to go about if universal healthcare is brought to the table? How how would that not be deemed unconstitutional? Because it would just be tax dollars. I mean, it eliminates the insurance companies completely, right? Yeah. You know, so obviously they're lobbying against it. And now, do you think that it would affect like other forms of insurance? Like, do you think your car insurance would rise? I think I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, if you have one... So in the UK, the system that there is, it's called national insurance. And it gets automatically deducted from your wages if you're employed by someone else or you owe a certain amount at the end of every year if you're self-employed. And that amount depends on how much you earn. So if you're earning less than 15k a year, you pay nothing. If you're earning between 15 and 30, you pay like 5 or 10%. Right. And if you're earning more than 50k a year, you pay like 15%. Um, and... Of your income on total taxes and a proportion And it of that. ends up still being cheaper. I mean... Oh, yeah. Like, this is the thing that... So, I, I was um, teaching a class, uh, a 100-level class called Power, Politics, and Inequality this term, and explaining to the kids, like, that Britain spends less per capita. Right. For a and, better And, I mean, service. wasn't it the, the um, Koch brothers did that study trying to make it look like you know, this type mm. of socialized medicine or universal healthcare was a bad thing. And it came back showing that it actually saves the yeah. taxpayers money. Yeah. So, you know, on, on average. As, like America spends more on healthcare, like more government tax dollars on healthcare than Britain, than France, than Germany. Right. I mean, obviously it varies from year to year, but like on average, um, more than these like other major nations. Uh, for a worse service. And the reason is there's a middleman. Right. And then, you know, one a lot of the issues, we talked about this, James Barber and I talked about it. He said that the biggest reason that he supports a, a universal healthcare model is medical or mental and dental. Mm. Because your teeth can destroy you, you know, both, both like by getting plaque built up on your heart and stuff, mm. you know, honestly, but then also cosmetically, where it can destroy, which you're from England, so maybe that's not an issue. No, <laughs> no, no. But then the mental health thing, it's mm. like if people have the ability to go without fear of their bankruptcy from the bill and they can go be seen by a professional, mm. then maybe that can lead to, you know, it's like 
I wish that politicians would focus on, you know, these tragedies, like these mass shootings, mm-hmm. okay? That's a mental health issue. Nobody wants to, d- to argue that point. Now, taking away guns, I mean, obviously in America, that's not going to happen, you know? But if we have people that can be seen, then maybe we can start to prevent that. Obviously, England is, there's no guns. Yeah, I mean, in, it's easier in England because it is an island. And right. so protecting protecting your your borders against uh, an influx of weaponry is pretty important, uh, like pretty easy right. compared to the US. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we have we have knife crime. There's no doubt. Like, there's been a big spike in knife crime in London. Right. Um, but if you're not dealing with with people's mental health issues, you're definitely increasing the risk to them and to those around them. Um, but yeah, it's it's. It's not something you can divorce from a kind of wider approach to society. You know, right. you can't deal with one issue in isolation and say, okay, well, we've fixed this thing. You've got to look at the the society as a whole and right. what the government as a whole is doing. And the whole purpose, you know. And, yeah. and so, see, that's kind of why I tend to lean left is because I feel there's more compassion. Mm. Because it's not just personal accountability. I do believe in personal accountability. I mean, I have teenagers. I'm trying to teach them that. <laughs> but that being said, I also believe in safety nets. Because if I believed in complete personal accountability, they'd already be thrown out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and, 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 like, so, so one of the big things that I've learned, like, being like studying political science is quite how important institutions are. Right. And they shape everything about our lives. And you get the kind of the, I guess the anti-government lobby in the, in the U S there's a lot of people who are like, you know, I just want to do stuff for myself. I don't want government to interfere. It took me a long time to get my head around this. And what I realized is it's not government per se that they have a problem with. It's bureaucracy. Right. It's, it's being forced to fill in forms, forced to be accountable to an outside power. Right. And when it comes to certain things, uh, like the military, for example, they're 100% in favor of government. I think that's, that's, it's true that they support it fully, but I think it's one of those things that's become societal to where if you, if you question it, mm. I mean, even me saying this right now is going to get people jeering like, whoa, what does he say? You know, well, you, I, again, like I have no problem with the military. No, me neither. And, I just totally and support you know, it. anyone who is willing to put their life on the line. Uh, to protect their country. Right. Like, good on you. And I admire that. Um, but the purposes to which militaries get uh, put, and I think, you know, the 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 Iraq invasion, probably exactly. left or right, people will agree that it was a bunch of old rich guys sending a bunch of, uh, of young working men and women to go off and, and die to make them rich. And the irony being in the 2016 election that Trump talked about how he was so against it yeah. when he had no no hand in it, you know, because mm. he was just a businessman. And yet the people on the right were like, yeah, Hillary Clinton voted for the Iraq war. Mm. And yet they had elected the person who sent us there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, so... I mean, like, Poor W. He kind of he kind of gets cut out of history a bit sometimes. Right. You know, people pretend that he didn't happen. It was just Clinton and then Obama. Uh, yeah. And, then, and it know. was interesting at the end. I mean, I don't I don't know how long Trump will be in office if he gets reelected or what. But towards the end, it was pretty much across the board that people hated him. I don't care what party it was. You know, I mean, even and a lot of times when people support him strongly, support a candidate strongly in the beginning, if they do finally start to come around where they're not approving of what they're doing mm. they just don't say it yeah you know like no one's going to admit it especially with trump because trump is like a cult you know like mm. the people that are loyal 
I will say, I hate to make the false equivalences, but <clears throat> under Obama, there was kind of the same thing. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think in a presidential system, it's really difficult to escape that kind of cult of personality aspect. Right. But the question is not about the, the third of the country, the third of the population who are with you no matter what. It's about the other two thirds. Right. And I think the critical difference between Obama and, I mean, there's a lot, but one of the critical ones was that Obama never stopped trying to reach out. Whether or not he was successful is another matter. Um, Trump's taken a very different tactic, which is to solidify the base and to serve that, that you know, third or quarter of the country um, to keep them happy at the expense of everyone else. At one point, I did kind of think that, uh, you know, and especially now with the swing in the midterms and Democrats taking back some of the power, I did, I did have this like maybe sliver of hope. Maybe it was naivety or I can't say that word being naive, <laughs> but, uh, that that Trump, because he has no like strong conviction mm. other than immigration, that he would work with Democrats, and we'll see. You know, I mean, you never know. I mean, I think if it wasn't for all of the other stuff, the campaign finance stuff and Mueller right. and the rest of it, that would be more viable than it is now. But the Democrats also have to look to to their base. Yeah. And you know, a lot of the reason they did well this time around was yeah, they appealed to centrists who flipped from. Uh, probably voted Obama and then voted Trump and then voted back to the Democrats because they're worried about the the kind of extreme elements. Which is so insane to me, how people can flip back and forth. I guess it makes sense because I'm pretty far on one side, you know. But, I mean, I, I'm, I, I've said it over and over again. I didn't, I left it blank. I didn't vote in the general mm. presidential election because the Democrats had cheated, like straight up. Yeah. And there's accountability, so we're stuck with what we have. So, but if you're, you know, if you're on either the left or the right, and you're not a centrist, there is this need to... Well, I, a lot of politicians will assume, oh, they're my people, they'll stay with me. Right. Um, and the big mistake the Democrats have made over the last 15, 20 years is assuming that working people, especially white working people, right. would just vote for them because, well, who else are you going to vote for? Turns out who else you're going to vote for is this uh, this foul-mouthed reality TV star. Right. It's insanity. Um, you know, so back to what we were talking about with healthcare. The biggest issue I see in the country, obviously, is the division. And so, and there's so many things that that encompasses, but I see um, universal healthcare as a compassion issue. Mm. So when you have people falling through the cracks that are getting uninsured, they're uninsured and they can't go to the doctor. So I would see it as being something that if you're investing in everyone, regardless of their weight and taxes, you know what I mean? Then it mm. basically shows your compassion for government institutions, like you were saying. Like they have to. I mean, yes, it needs to be kind of cut and dry and straight up, but that would show that there's a compassion, and that's why I've always supported it. Mm. That's what Bernie Sanders. I think that's why he has a a his group. It's because they believe they're compassionate about bigger numbers of people. It's a huge umbrella, mm. you know. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, a lot of the candidates. I mean, Hillary didn't support it. Yeah, you know, and and again, you got to bear in mind, like the the right wing of the Democratic Party is as owned by big corporate donors as people complain right. about the Republicans being, and and the insurgency that that Trump was the head of was only possible because both parties, the center of both parties, had managed um, to alienate a right. whole bunch of people. And I think Obama was paid for by insurance companies. Mm. In a lot of ways. I mean, he was very much funded by insurance companies. So there's no way that he was going to push for universal health care. Yeah. I just don't see 
it's going to, you know, progress is slow. Hmm. So I don't see Bernie winning this next election. I, I think the next election at this stage is very, very difficult to call. But what I do know is just in the short, the two years that I've been here, there's been a real shift about the way that people think about healthcare. Yeah. Um, and it's like, uh, it's over 50%. I mean, Republicans are supporting yeah. the idea of universal healthcare. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's a thing in political science, the, the, the collective action problem. And climate change comes into this as well. It's the same sort of problem where what is good for us uh, when we think of ourselves as part of a group is not necessarily what is logical and rational for an individual to do. Right. So with climate change, the rational thing for me to do is to get in my big old SUV and drive the the 500 yards to to Dairy Mart to 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 get some milk. Right. Right. Whereas when I think of myself as a person living on a planet, then that's not the most logical thing for me to do. And right. In healthcare, we have that same tension between well, I don't want to pay for other people on the one hand, or we're all better off if we pay together on the other. And it needs a change in values. And I think even um, you know, across the board, the conversations being had, I think the one thing that Bernie's candidacy uh, in the primaries last time around did was put this thing on the table that people had never even considered before. And like explaining to some of my wife's older relatives what socialized medicine is, which basically they think it's the next like one rung down from like like full-blown Stalinism. Yeah, right. And then you explain it to them, Medicare for all, basically. Essentially. And cut out the middleman. And especially if someone's kind of business-oriented, they go, yeah, it doesn't make sense for there to be someone making money in between me and uh, and my healthcare provider. Right. It's administrative costs, essentially. So on, I always make the comparison, you know, when you talk about people being like, I don't want to have to pay for that or Mm. whatever, I always make the comparison to the caste system. So if you come from you know, Indian and roots in India, the caste system is, is basically still in effect, right? Like it's socially in effect. I think that's, you know, so socially, so it is metaphoric essentially. Like, cause I always think of that argument as being similar to the caste system. I don't want to make sure I'm not like out of line or if, if it's a questionable thing to think that, but basically it's to where you get people on the top, making the middle think that the bottom is the problem. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah. essentially. I mean, but that's you know, that that's that's caste, that's class, like. Right. And I think I think you know the caste system is the most uh, egregious example. Right. Um. But yeah, any system that has class, and I think one of the things that that has definitely changed in America over the last hundred years is that a hundred years ago there was a lot more social mobility, and the idea that America was a classless society was was at least possible to conceive of. Right. But these days. You know, you're, if anything, you're likely to be worse off than your parents were right. and stuck in, in a lower sort of socioeconomic bracket than they were. I mean, at least starting out. That's the thing that you can get there. You can work really hard and, and get there. And, and, but you, you know, do need luck as well as hard work. Absolutely. And placement. And, and bad luck, like a broken ankle at sure. the wrong time, a broken hand, like you right. said. And people can end up in really dire straits. Right. And then, you know, credit. I mean, credit cards are such a young thing, really, because that started in like the Yeah, 70s. but like loan sharking has been around for a long time. And sure. what are credit cards that's other true. than... That's true. Probably at a... Yeah. So it's probably... That's true. So it's probably actually at a, letter, a lesser percentage than it used <laughs> to be, because it used to be they broke your kidneys, yeah. broke your legs. But yeah, I've always kind of made that comparison, you know, to the caste system. And I don't know or claim to know a lot about India or the way it works, but is that based in more just Hindu or is it... I mean, it, it was based in the Hindu system, right. but 
like when the Mughals conquered most of India, they they didn't do a whole lot to change that. Right. And, you know, there was a, a certainly a, a in all, to all intents and purposes, a caste system still right. in play. Because they like, believe, I mean, if Hindus believe in reincarnation, mm. essentially they believe that if you make poor choices in this life, that you will come back as a lesser class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So. And, and you can kind of compare that actually to the whole sort of Protestant work ethic idea where you get that happening within your lifetime. So right. the idea that if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. It's, beca- it's exactly. because you're, you're, you're undeserving in some way, shape or form. And the idea that a, a, a person who's like hardworking and dedicated and trying to do the best for their family could end up at the bottom of the pile is very, very difficult for a lot of people to get their heads around. Right. And then um, that's something for uh, non-college graduate white people in America that have supported Trump is they're like, wait a minute, this, you know, that's the thing I think that scares them the most about immigrants. It's not the fear tactic of the 10 people coming to 10 terrorists in the caravan that Donald Trump pulled out of his ass. That that's not as much of the fear. I think that's like bombastic. And the basic fear is economic, but it's economic. It's that they're taking Um, our jobs. And and this is the thing is that at, at one level, it is a legitimate fear. Right. Um, particularly when you have uh, undocumented workers who are themselves being exploited. They're being exploited by bosses, right? Right. Um, but they're not unionized in the way that, that you know, people who've been here for a while or, um, you know, who, yeah, people who've been here for a while or, or several generations, they, they tend to look after themselves by unionizing, by, by, by bargaining collectively. Right. That gives you a strength against your bosses that that undocumented workers don't have but at the same time it is an easy way to play as you said different parts against each other right um it's just interesting though because you know the like white privilege you know basically is that you get people that are just complete deniers of it and then and then they're going to deny the the existence of white privilege so just the whole concept of even considering it makes them so angry that they would support their opposite side Mm. that denies that then you get climate change. Then you get healthcare, which, like you said, it's like they believe it's like straight communists. I mm. think a lot of times when people are saying, "Well, he's a socialist," they mean that they think that it's like they Hitler's, mean Stalinist. Hitler was a socialist yeah. in their mind. But I mean, so a lot of this stuff like like comes off of memes, and right. and while memes are fun, it's not something you should base your political worldview on. And that whole like you know uh, national socialists thing that you get from a lot of right-wingers or the other one being like the you know, clan was started by the democrats by the democrats and the republicans were were uh the party that abolished slavery yeah it's true that those are all names that were given to things in different points in time but word meanings change the platform of a political party can certainly change right and i think it's really important to not be distracted by these labels right so you know we were talking before we started like do we talk about socialized medicine do we talk know, about universal healthcare? Word. right um and all of those things mean the same thing right one of the biggest things i see though from the left from is that you want to make concessions mm. like like socially so you want to make concessions like by saying that not all the people on the right are racist. They're not. Mm. They're not absolutely not. And that it, it, there is some truth to the Republican Party back in the 1860s putting an end to slavery because they believed in personal freedom mm. or whatever. And and some of that still exists as I, I don't know where, I, where I'm going with it, but it's it's so funny how those like you used to be able to publicly shame somebody to get them to do the right thing. Now people double down and go back into their corners. And it's just so difficult. But the, like you said, those labels, it's destructive. Yeah, I think, I think 
you know, I, I've, I'm very, I've always been on the left, but right. uh, I've worked in uh, political administrations. And what you have to do there is you need to meet the person that you disagree with halfway and say, there is something that both of us believe in beyond our politics, which is the institutions of this country and the country itself. Right, right. And, and that's it. That's what's tough, a tough sale, like I was yeah. saying about compassion with healthcare. Mm. That's a tough sell to certain people in this country that yeah. are sticking just to the labels, you know? And that's where, we're, you know, a person like Beto O'Rourke, I feel like, crossed... I mean, obviously, Texas was a, was a difficult mm. mountain. But it's interesting that he lost Texas to Ted Cruz by a slim margin, yeah. closed a huge gap, and yet he's a viable candidate for, I think, vice president. Mm. Honestly, I think anyone... Would... Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a need uh, for the Democrats to not go too far to the left, actually. I yeah. think they need a they need a, an emblematic vice president. Right. Um, but the, the person who's actually likely to get elected has to at least reassure the, the Obama to Trump voters the swing voters right. that that we're not going to see some kind of like radical Venezuelan experiment. Yeah, and that's um, what Fox is going to be pushing. And like, yeah. you know, I, I like personally, I saw John Kerry in um, uh, the Vietnam documentary that Ken Burns did. And I was like, actually, this guy was, you know, he's been standing his corner for a long time. And while I don't agree with all of his policies as a, a, uh, a sort of platform holder for the Democratic Party, someone like that is more viable to me than than Bernie. Much as I I love and respect Bernie, there's also just the thing of you got to get your guy in, and that has to be more important. Right. I, you know, I saw something on the news the other day, and they're talking about uh, it was on MSNBC, but they said how many people they asked someone how many people in the Democratic Party are going to be running for president? Mm -hmm. Does the number start with a two? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's going to be a large yeah. field. And that's how it worked with the Republicans. And then you saw the rise of, like you were saying about not going too extreme to the mm. left, but maybe in the primary, if you can have this large debate, because you've already got Richard o Ojeda yeah. is already in the conversation mm. running. And his whole reasoning is because he wants to be in the conversation. I think yeah. it's smart. If people aren't familiar with that guy, they need to look him up. Now he's, he's brilliant. He's um, interesting because he's I'm... West Virginia. Like, and he's ex-military. Built like a tank, army major. Yeah. And his um, biggest issue is opioid yeah. addiction, which is incredible because that's a huge problem. Mm. Again, a healthcare issue that, you know, it's like if we had ways that people can be... Well, see, this is a different thing altogether because that's the doctor's... The answer isn't always just seeing a doctor, mm. you know, because they're... They're yeah, because the doctors are incentivized to to push addictive, right. addictive substances. But he's somebody that voted for Trump and then always been a Democrat, he mm. says, but it voted for Trump and then regrets it and then ran in West Virginia and closed a margin that was insane. Yeah. You know, and it's it's funny because the day after he lost in West Virginia, he announced his, mm. his run president, for president. Yeah. And I think I, in Oregon, I think we're going to see Jeff Merkley running. Yep. Which because I apparently he's renting an apartment in Iowa mm. and that. Which I have a guy that's at the university, and I can't remember his name right now, but he's a customer of mine that had lived in Iowa and worked on Iowa caucuses, which I'm really hoping as the, as it gets closer to mm. the date, we'll have him on to talk about Iowa and how that goes down, because that's basically the kickoff of the political season, which, I mean, that's coming up. Yeah. You know, we're already in that year, and it's hard to believe. Mm. The presidential election is going to be like two years long, so... Yeah, and and I think this one's going to be like it's going to be bruising, right? Um, because you don't, you probably have about four or five political parties actually under right. the umbrella of the two main parties, right? right. 
And it's difficult to know what kind of coalitions are going to end up forming in those parties. Right. I think especially with the the sort of, um, you know, the old school upright Republicans, the, the constitutionalists, um, where they go if they leave Trump on the basis that, like, you know, this guy doesn't represent anything that we stand for. Right. You know, I'm 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 thinking of I'm thinking of you know Grandma, who who is socially conservative and and governmentally conservative in terms of policy, and they may just sit out. And they may just sit out. You know, because um, I mean, if if for Grandma, a lot of times, abortion is number one issue. Yeah. You know, and so they're not going to vote for a Democrat that's openly pro-choice. Yeah, they won't know? go for someone, but they might just not turn out, which is huge. So. Um, well, because they're also the most reliable voting block. So Kaz, I wanted to kind of wrap it up, but I also wanted to kind of, this is the last episode of 2018 and we're coming up on Christmas and I wanted to kind of jokingly talk about the war on Christmas and, and uh, the song that I'm going to play at the end is a song I wrote last year called Saying Merry Christmas Again, which is which is great. In England, is is it as big of a deal? Do you have the war on Christmas there as well? Kind of. I mean, I mean they, they tried to make it a thing. Right. Um, and so there's the usual, like, you know, town council prevent declares war on Christmas by not putting up uh, fairy lights. And it turns out it's actually because there's no budget for these things. <laughs> right. Know, the... Yeah. Because in Eugene, back in the day, it was a big controversy mm-hmm. where they wouldn't allow Christmas trees at a bank. And it's ironic to me because I'm like, what the hell does a Christmas tree well, really yeah, have a... to do with Christ? I mean, Christmas trees are a pagan exactly. winter solstice thing that were incorporated if anything like you know we're a, we're a mixed religion household we have a christmas tree because it's it's not actually a religious thing it's just nice to have something green totally in the house totally. at this time of year because it's pretty great well in oregon we have to cut down trees it's part of our economy yeah so so as long as you plant two more then you're yeah. good and we can argue about that next time but no it's funny you know and it's just something that i think that I don't want to say that Christians are persecutors. Through history, they are. But that's not the whole point of American Christian mm. Christians. But I feel like that's the way for them. Everybody wants to be an underdog. And yeah. so when they have the control over the demographic as far as the faith in America. And the institutions. Right, yeah. right. Then they can make it to where, yeah. you know. I think ultimately me. the loss of privilege feels a lot like oppression. Uh, yeah. And see, I don't, I'm excited about that mm. concept because... I guess it's because I was raised by Irish people with Catholic guilt, mm. <laughs> you know, that it's like, finally, I can maybe shed some of this guilt, you know, I, that's part of it. I'm not even going to lie. But Kaz, it's a real honor to get to talk to it's you. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. So we're going to end this uh, with a song I made featuring Jay Philly and a little cameo from Donald J. Trump. It's called Saying Merry Christmas Again. All right. Merry Christmas, say everybody. Again, as we approach the See, end of the it. year. You know, we're getting near that beautiful Christmas season that people don't talk about anymore. They don't use the word Christmas because it's not politically correct. We're saying Merry Christmas again. Remember Jaju with the gas bag says, or we'll have his minions cut off your heads as the holidays approach us. We'll take this time to focus on the proper way to address greedy shoppers. We won't stop. We're bringing Christmas back. Do it through judging you on your syntax. We won't stand for this. We will all get pissed if the coffee cup doesn't have an angel. This snowflake business can take a hike. Had no choice but to sit down and write. Do
So celebrate what you celebrate and have the nerve to give the clerk an extra saucy word for them to go back home and marinate and let them know your blanket statement covers a whole picnic and the same money you both pay is worth more with the message. It's an annual war on my belief system. They beat the drums on the TV news to reach Christians. Pour out some eggnog for the homies lost to trampling crowds. A sale is a sale and we're leading by example now. When seasons change from pumpkin to cornucopia, it's rearranged to an Orwellian dystopia. Freedom rings with every purchase at a less amount so we can wrap a gift the kids a week from now forget about so this is christmas and what have we done we capitalize and radicalize the sacred day of family fun asking for something we're not gonna get back i guess that the best chance is putting it in white text up on a red hat we are saying merry christmas merry christmas again we are saying Again.